The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts that address questions from the media and viewers at home. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. Within a cross-Canada digital landscape, we wish to take time to acknowledge all the Inuit, Métis, and First Nations people that call this land home. Please take a moment to reflect on your relationship with the people and the lands on which you are currently situated. Today's conversation is being shared in English and in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This national conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. We are hoping to create a French language translation as well. If you are interested in regular information in French, please also tune in to our sister broadcast through Pop Quebec. Details can be found at www.popqc.ca. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Canadians, attempting to ensure that everyone in the country has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 as possible and the nationwide impact of regional policies. From wherever you're joining us, thank you and welcome back. It's February 2nd, 2022, Groundhog Day. I've heard from a lot of folks that the experience of COVID-19 has conjured imagery of the 1993 film that shares its name, a day that historically looked for wisdom of what was to come in the weeks ahead. Would the cold and darkness continue, or would warmth and potential for new growth be just around the corner? In the film, the perpetual loop experienced by the hostile, judgmental, and unempathetic unempathetic protagonist resonates strongly for me, especially today, with allegorical ties to events that have occurred over the last two years, amplified this week during the escalating divisiveness, pandering, and dangerous ideological narratives that are penetrating, influencing, and casting a horrifically dark shadow on our society. One of the underlying themes of the film is the possibility of redemption. The moral philosophy of existence that embraces wisdom, knowledge, ethics, and time. So the protagonists may move forward, embracing what they have learned. If we as a nation are the protagonists in this real life story, will we continue in the dark frozen tundra shadowed by self-service and personal gain? Or will we seek light and move forward with what we have learned yesterday and the yesterday before and the yesterday before to illuminate a new chapter of connected human experience. Today we will be examining what we learned as a nation during the SARS outbreak in 2003, what we uncovered about our society during the outbreak and our response once the crisis had passed. We will explore the implications of that experience and examine our response exploring if we incorporated any of that knowledge into our policies and actions over the last two years. With us today, we have three experts from across Canada whose experiences and knowledge put them truly in a league of their own when it comes to their understanding of our national response. And I am so thankful they have offered their time to join us today. I'm going to introduce our panelists before we dive into some exceptionally insightful and reflective presentations. First, I would like to introduce Mario Passami, 
He was a senior advisor to the Minister of Justice, Archie Campbell, on the SARS Commission and was responsible for pandemic planning and occupational health and safety. Assisting the wise, compassionate Justice Campbell was an honor of his lifetime. For nearly three decades, Mario taught at the police academy, at police academies in Canada and in the U.S. and led and participated in complex international money laundering, corruption, and fraud investigations, including the Briex gold mining scandal. Also with me today, I have Matthew Oliver. Matthew is an aerospace electrical engineer who has practiced for 35 years in a variety of disciplines, including forensic investigation and military flight test. He is presently responsible for the regulatory systems that govern about 56,000 licensed engineers and geoscientists in Alberta, and he is a citizen of the Métis Nation. Additionally, I am thrilled to welcome back Dr. Lynn Filiatro, a retired emergency physician and member of Protect Our Province, BC. Lynn spent most of her career in the emergency department at Vancouver General Hospital, where she also served as the emergency department quality improvement director. In 2016, after 20 years, she left clinical practice and went on to co-lead for three years the Vancouver Physician Staff Association, a provincial physician engagement initiative. Once again, thank you all so much for joining us. It's lovely to see you. As today's topic is exceptionally robust, we're going to dive right in. Our panelists have all prepared presentations to share with everyone tuning in. Um, and so I suspect most of our time today will be allocated to the sharing of this information. And it is uh, such a unique opportunity to uncover knowledge of our past learnings. I, for one, am so excited to be able to sit back, listen, and absorb. Um, if we have time after the presentations, we will take some questions from folks at home and or media. So I am going to pop two of our panelists back into our waiting room. And we are going to start off on the West Coast with Dr. Filiatro. Dr. Filiatro, could you take us back to March of 2003 and share with everyone what was happening in Vancouver and beyond when this novel virus, SARS-1, first came to Canada? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'll bring you back to what happened that fateful day in March 2003. It started off as a regular day. Um, got to the emergency department 15 minutes early before my 7 a.m. shift and decided to spend some time looking at my emails before I started. And one of them, next slide, caught my attention. It was a memo from the uh, British Columbia Centre for Disease Control that alerted us to pay attention to some atypical pneumonia cases that were happening in central China and the possible reemergence of the avian flu or the bird flu in Hong Kong. So I read the memo, didn't think much of it, and then went to start my shift. Next slide, please. I work in a teaching hospital and everything was going well up until about an hour before the end of my shift at around two o'clock in the afternoon. I was standing at the nursing desk and suddenly I heard our charge, uh, sorry, our triage nurse shout for help. 
I turned around and I saw her wheeling a middle-aged Asian gentleman in a wheelchair, and he looked visibly distraught. He was having difficulty breathing. As luck would have it, I was standing right next to our respiratory uh, technician in the emergency department, and three of us with the triage nurse went to work. We did what we normally do is pay attention to the ABC, airway, breathing, circulation, stabilize the patient, order investigation, portable x-rays, start IVs, etc. And it's only when this was all done, the patient was stabilized, that I turned my attention to his wife. And in talking to her, that's when the story unfolded. They had just got back from Hong Kong where they had spent a few days. And he, her husband, had gotten sick there with fever, cough, and shortness of breath. They flew back the night before to Vancouver and then went to see the family doctor who immediately sent them to the emergency department. And that's when the light went off or went on. And I suddenly recalled the memo and started thinking, what if this was the bird flu that I just read about? So we pulled out masks, and I must say, initially, they were surgical masks, but we also changed our approach. And because I was working in a teaching hospital, I decided instead of referring to um, uh, house staff or trainees to go straight from staff to staff communication to limit the exposure. And then the investigation started coming back. And more and more, it seemed like it was a viral infection. I spoke with my mentor, who happened to be the physician who came on duty to replace me. And the charge nurse that was listening to the story decided to leave the um, sign out and immediately took it upon herself to shuffle patients around to empty one of our isolation rooms. And then within the next few minutes, she moved our patient into a negative uh, pressure room, an isolation room. And that's essentially what happened. And like I said, when I left the shift, I just thought this was a funny, maybe bird flu or respiratory uh, viral infection. But two days later, the story broke. This was a new disease. It was called SARS. Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And next slide, please. And then what happened when things, when the dust fell and things started to settle in the world and we got, a, a, um, we got over SARS uh, or we conquered SARS, I got a phone call to go to a reception. And it happened to be on a night shift, and it was at the uh, reception from the BCCDC that wanted to honor me for um, having identified the index case in Vancouver and avoiding the worst catastrophe. So what I did is I turned the invitation down and instead sent my mentor. I went on to do my night shift. The reason being is that this had nothing to do with me. This had to do with a timely memo from the BCCDC and for, for, um, had to do with a team 
of healthcare workers coming together with a shared and common purpose, treating the patients in front of them and making sure that whatever he, illness he had would not spread to the rest of the department and the community. So there was no hero, hero leader like we'd like to think about. This was a team effort. And so, next slide. The Vancouver General uh, Hospital Emergency Department um, received the award for identifying and really setting the tone for how the SARS response was to be managed in British Columbia. This was in 2003. Next slide. I had refused every single interview afterwards. And it took 10 years before I spoke openly about that first uh, um, index case and how we'd managed it. In 2013, while I was still practicing, I was part of a campaign to inform the public that if the index case of SARS presented to VGH emergency department in 2013, we could not do so well. At that point, the hospital was running at 120% capacity. On any shift, I had anywhere from 10, 20, or 30 patients admitted in the emergency department, which meant that my team was seeing patients in the hallway and in the waiting room. So if the index case of SARS had, pre had presented 10 years later in 2013 to VGH emergency department, the patient would have sent, been sent to the hallway or the waiting room, infecting everybody around. We're now in 2022. Where are we at with our response? Next slide. It's obvious that a team is not enough. In order to have a successful response, um, be it to a pandemic or to serious illness presenting to the emergency department, you need a functioning healthcare system. You need servant leadership models and you need resources. And by resources, I mean people, nurses, physician, allied health. I mean stretchers, beds. I mean room, space and I mean medicines as well. Without having all of this, you can't have a successful pandemic response. You can't have a successful emergency department. So in 2022, where are we at? That's it. Thank you so very much, Dr. Filiatro. Um, when you spoke in 2013 around how 10 years after the response and the success that your team had with containing that first case in Vancouver of SARS, um, how it would how it would not happen because of that lack of resources and capacity. Did you feel like anyone was listening? Um, 
It was the uh, video that you saw there was a joint effort uh, put together by the BC Section of Emergency Medicine. There were a group of physicians uh, that were supported by the, um, at the time it was the British Columbia Medical Association. And it was really a um, publicity uh, response to really to inform uh, the citizens of British Columbia and put pressure on the government. And it did help. Uh, we ended up with having more support for staffing, but the footprint of the emergency department did not enlarge. So you ended up with more physicians, but we ended up working in uh, the hallway at triage, uh, in the back office of uh, the triage desk. And um, in fact, we expanded the hallway to put numbers in the hallways and pegs so we could put our IVs. So the footprint was still very constrained. And um, so we had more staffing, but not enough beds. And if you recall the last presentation by uh, Dr. Noel uh, Gibney, um, Canada is one of the OECD countries that has a limited amount of bed per capita compared to other uh, countries. And that really put us on the back foot when the pandemic struck. So we have limited um, beds to hospitalize people. We have limited ICU capacity. And what we're finding out now is that before the pandemic, we didn't have enough healthcare workers, certainly not enough nurses. And now with so many having left, having burned out or having um, or struggling with their mental health, it's obvious that we don't have enough um, for this Omicron wave. Um, just this week, the British Columbia government announced that 17,000 healthcare workers called in sick in the last week. Sorry, it's a long response. It is exactly the, the purpose of today's conversation is for humans like me, humans um, from across the country to be able to lean in and take this opportunity to listen to your experience and the experiences of the other panelists today. Mm -hmm. That way we can start creating tomorrows that don't keep repeating these problems that what I'm hearing from you at the moment anyway sounds like some investment we could have been prepared for because we do know things. It's not, as much as it is a novel virus, it is not a new concept, um, given how successfully you guys were able to contain your index case of mm -hmm. SARS-CoV-1. I'm going to bring you back up in a moment, Dr. Filiatro, um, as we make it through our couple of other presentations today. Um, I'm going to invite Mario up. Um, to walk us through some of the things on the east side of things as you're coming to us from further east, so Toronto, um, to share your experience from 2003 and what the work with the SARS Commission post that revealed and how hubris has contributed to the failure of our response when dealing with this novel and continuously evolving pathogen. Thank you so much, Mario. You are muted, so I'm going to unmute you. Perfect. There we go. And I will bring up your slides. Thank you again for being Great. Well, well, thank you very much. And uh, good afternoon, everyone. And uh, um, uh, Lynn's presentation was terrific. And it brought back uh, some, some very strong memories. And uh, 
my 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 strongest memory of Vancouver General, where I spent uh, quite a bit of time, uh, was its esprit de corps. You know, the the uh, the ability of of its staff and its teams to uh, to work together and support each other was it was quite uh, quite quite a quite eye opening experience. Um, uh, next slide, please. So uh, I, I, I want to I want to start by, by taking you back to um, uh, my uh, to the uh, uh, long term care hearings uh, in, in in Ontario in 2020 December 2020 when I testified before Justice Morocco and Justice Morocco uh, made some very raised some very interesting points he he noted that the the SARS Commission SARS Commission which was uh, Conducted in, in Ontario between uh, 2003 and 2007, uh, the final report issued by Justice Campbell uh, was well received, um, praised by everyone. But but then he asked, you know, the, the the really key question. He said, even though that occurred, why has there not been a, a meaningful take up of the precautionary principle? And so today, I I, I want to make that um, the the core question that I that I hope I can help answer. And and um, it, it's it, it's 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 one side of of, uh, of of the presentation. So part of the presentation is going to be focusing on why haven't we followed the precautionary principle despite the the, the evidence from SARS. And secondly, um, I also want to want to put forward uh, evidence that, in my view, there was sufficient evidence at the beginning of the pandemic for us to have taken a precautionary approach right from, from the start. Next slide, please. So uh, uh, that's uh, Mr. Justice Archie Campbell, who uh, uh, I, I worked for at the SARS Commission. And, and I tell you, he was a tremendous, tremendous uh, man, uh, my mentor, my good friend. Um, and he, um, he, he set out a, a blueprint, a roadmap that I think uh, had it been followed would have uh, would have uh, put us in a, in a much better position to effectively respond to uh, COVID-19. So he he landed he landed on the precautionary principle as really the most important finding of his commission. And and the principle is is one that I think most of us uh, uh, lead our lives and try to teach our children. And that is uh, uh, the point is not science but certainty but safety rather. And he said, he wrote, uh, we should be driven by the precautionary principle that reasonable steps to reduce risk should not await scientific certainty. N next step, next uh, slide rather. So in, in reaching that conclusion, he was, he, was a, he was influenced by the experience of Vancouver and of BC and how they handled SARS. And, and, and you know, starting with the great work that Lynn and her colleagues did at Vancouver General, uh, BC really deployed a precautionary approach throughout uh, throughout SARS, and at the end of it, uh, they only had uh, four cases. Uh, they really effectively contained, and I think they were the the gold standard in Toronto. And th this is really interesting. Um, uh, while Lynn and her colleagues were dealing with the Vancouver index patient uh, on the same day, within hours of each other. Uh, the Toronto index patient uh, presented to Scarborough Grace, and that patient was not dealt with as effectively as as, as the one in Vancouver. Uh, uh, he uh, uh, he was not isolated. Uh, staff did not wear 
uh, uh, N95s. In fact, he was uh, he was left uh, in, in a hallway for about uh, I believe twelve hours, and and that that really began the uh, the SARS outbreak. There was another really important factor that influenced Justice Campbell, and that is. Um, early in, in the SARS outbreak in Toronto, uh, the decision was made by a uh, uh, the, 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 the leadership, which had really been cobbled together and was really uh, uh, learning, learning by doing, if, if you will. They decided to, to uh, uh, mandate N95 respirators for all healthcare workers. They did this on their own. Uh, w- without the uh, uh, consulting of the approval of the uh, infectious disease community, and the infectious disease community um, was was quite uh, quite angry about it. Uh, said it was not necessary, and they said, you know, this was a droplet disease. Uh, you know, it, it's not airborne. It's not. Uh, it's not like measles or or, or, or TB. And you know they continued uh, long after to say that uh, uh, that the N95s uh, were really an overreaction. Um, uh, ne- next slide, please. But w- what happened interestingly, and there's a real parallel here to, to COVID, is that uh, starting about a year after SARS, so in 2004, uh, a number of studies emerged that SARS was an airborne disease. And so Justice Campbell said, and, and uh, I've got it here on, on the screen, the fact that these studies, uh, after the fact, showed that uh, uh, SARS had this uh, airborne potential uh, suggests the wisdom and prudence of taking a precautionary approach in the absence of scientific certainty. So. So the, and there's a real ironic parallel. I'm not sure if I'm using the word ironic uh, properly, but there's a real parallel with what's happened during COVID. In COVID, at the start of the pandemic, uh, our infectious disease and public health leaders said uh, we can rule out airborne transmission. We don't have to worry about it. Uh, and what happened is that subsequently, uh, in quite a short order, in fact, uh, uh, studies demonstrated that uh, uh, that that airborne that the COVID was indeed spread primarily through through the airborne route. Next slide, please. Why this reluctance to follow the precautionary principle? Well, history history teaches us some some important lessons, and and uh, not sure if, if uh, many of you have read uh, Thomas Kuhn's book, where he uh, he, he developed the term of uh, the the, the uh, paradigm shift. It's it's a it's heavy slogging, but it's a it's a worthwhile read. What what uh, Dr. Kuhn found was that um, over time, you know, going back to Galileo, um, uh, science evolved through revolutionary change, and whenever that happened, um, there was always um, uh, a group of of experts uh, who were. Uh, tied into the old dogma, refused to change or see the new change, and and they uh, and they um, uh, cause a, a a strong clash with uh, with those who follow the uh, the new science. And so this this clash between the old and the new, this clash between uh, an old established uh, um, group that that, that uh, 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 fought to maintain the the old orthodoxy uh, has been part of science. Next slide, please. 
The classic uh, uh, example is from the 19th century, uh, London, England, uh, when Dr. John Snow conclusively demonstrated that uh, cholera uh, was a waterborne disease. It had been taught, uh, it had been believed to be airborne, but uh, his evidence was very, very, very strong. And he, he made this, this discovery in the 1860s, and it really dramatically changed the, uh, uh, the, the health of, uh, of people living in the slums of London. In fact, uh, radically transformed uh, public health and epidemiology. Next slide, please. But many of those who had held the old, the old approach to, to cholera, that it was a waterborne disease, uh, held on. And the classic example was uh, Max von Pettenkoffer. Uh, Pettenkoffer, for the, for the 30 years uh, after Dr. Snow's discovery, continued to, uh, to, uh, to argue that uh, cholera uh, remains, remained, in his view, a, a waterborne, uh, an airborne disease. And I think that uh, uh, you know some of the some of the people who so strongly oppose the airborne uh, transmission evidence and maintain the their, their allegiance to the uh, large droplet transmission theory uh, risk being being seen by by history as as uh, uh, as associates as followers of uh, Max von Pettenkoffer. Next slide, please. So, uh, um, you know, as I indicated earlier, towards the end of SARS, or, sorry, uh, in the year after SARS, evidence began growing that, uh, began developing rather, that SARS had been airborne. But, but what happened also was, was much bigger than that. Over the, uh, over the, uh, the 17 years between SARS and, and the dawn of COVID-19, there was a huge growth in research in airborne uh, transmission, in aerosols, in how uh, how diseases are, uh, are are transmitted through through the air. One of the uh, seminal researchers was uh, Lydia Burwaba from uh, MIT, and uh, who's brilliant. And in, in you know 2014, she demonstrated that uh, um, you know the two meter rule was really uh, um, uh, immaterial and outdated, and she showed that uh, the large droplet theory was based on 1930 science, uh, based on a time when uh, instruments were not sensitive enough to to identify aerosols. And and she uh, she and her team at MIT uh, developed many of the of the wonderful graphics. I'm sure you've seen them. The, we have uh, two people speaking and. Uh, you can see the uh, the turbulent gas, for example, in the air as as, as they speak. Uh, next slide, please. And there were there were many others uh, like uh, Don Milton at uh, uh, at Maryland who uh, had started even before SARS and continued to uh, develop this <clears throat> new uh, new research that uh, brought him into the mainstream. Where when he first started out, people thought he was uh, he was he was nuts. Uh, next slide, please. And so le leading up to, to, to SARS, we have this golden age of research into aerosols, um, uh, really a tremendous research, innovative and really, really important. And uh, um, this, this, this uh, momentum of research continued during SARS. So what I have here is, <clears throat> is, is, a, is a chart developed by a uh, Dr. McDonald from, from Ottawa, 
Jennifer McDonald. And uh, um, it, it, I think I think it's it was accurate up until uh, rather it was based uh, on re her research up until April May of last year. And, and what she showed is that in short order during the the first four or five months of SARS of COVID nineteen rather. Uh, uh, evidence of its airborne qualities uh, was was much more robust than than for measles, and so you know you, you have uh, infectious disease docs uh, always pointing to, to to measles as as a classic case, but th th this graphic really showed, and and I, I commend Dr. McDonald for this, that in fact the evidence of COVID nineteen uh, uh, exceeded the, the evidence for measles and was done in in in, in short order. Next slide, please. And yet, what 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 happened? What has happened? And it's 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 really tragic. Is that um, the infectious disease and uh, and the public health leaders of this country did not keep up with that wonderful science with all those learnings, both you know between SARS and COVID nineteen and during the early part of COVID nineteen, and part of it was that. The, um, the the infectious disease and public health leadership of this country has been resistant to other disciplines. So uh, you know th this was maybe the most blatant example of it. This is uh, Dr. Alegranzi from from WHO, and, and she was <clears throat> you could tell she was she was pretty uh, pretty angry uh, at, you know at all the all the questions she was feeling from the media, all the, all the articles about. Uh, COVID-19 being, being airborne. And she said, you know, you, you have to stop. You know, you, you have to look at who's, who's doing this research. Well, it's it's engineers and uh, aerobiologists and, and physicists and things of this nature. And this is not being accepted by, uh, by epidemiologists and public health leaders. And, you know, the sad thing is that it really demonstrated this aversion to, uh, to other disciplines. But in fact, uh, what we needed and what we need is collaboration. One of Justice Campbell's recommendations was that public health agencies should bring in engineers and aerosol experts and all the disciplines that can that can impact uh, the, uh, disease transmission, so you, so you get the best minds and a collaborative environment to to deal with the issue. Next slide, please. And then and then the other the other really important factor that that really uh, uh, also. Uh, uh, focused uh, uh, Justice Campbell in the importance of the precautionary principle was that uh, 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 SARS was a new disease. It, it was unseen. It was not something that, that that we as human beings had dealt with before. And he said that we must be ready for the for the unseen. Uh, we, we can't treat. Uh, we can't. Uh, we must be ready for for new diseases. Uh, this was a. Uh, a, a view that uh, WHO shared uh, a few years ago when they warned about disease X and disease X, uh, disease X as they described it, was very similar to what uh, COVID-19 is. Next slide, please. In fact, uh, Canada prepared not for the unseen, but for influenza. You know, the, the Canadian pandemic plan that uh, Dr. Tam oversaw was uh, was the Canadian pandemic influenza plan. Um, you know, Dr. New uh, admitted last year that uh, 
you know, that, that they planned for an influenza pandemic. And, um, you know, I, I, again, uh, an important lesson from SARS, an important lesson from the WHO uh, was really ignored. And, and uh, you know, they, they treated COVID-19 as if it was influenza. Next slide. And I think, uh, you know, uh, this, this was a statement made by, by, by Lisa Brousseau in, in March of 2020. You know, at, at the dawn of the pandemic, um, you know, we didn't know one way or the other whether it was airborne or not. The evidence was inconclusive. Uh, I, I, I will argue and have argued that uh, there were good grounds for taking a precautionary approach. But uh, at the very least, uh, we, we did not have the grounds to rule out airborne transmission. Um, and and uh, her, her very wise words were, were sadly ignored. Next slide. So, 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 um, just turning to the to the argument in favor of taking a precautionary approach uh, at the start of the pandemic, at the start of COVID nineteen. You know, as as I indicated, you know, lending weight to the precautionary principle was all that great research uh, into uh, aerosols. Um, there, but there was also other evidence. Uh, part of the evidence was that. Uh, COVID-19's cousins, SARS and MERS, were both uh, airborne diseases. And then lastly, and this is set out in this, in this slide, was that uh, uh, there was good evidence, uh, extensive evidence from, from, from Chinese scientists and doctors uh, warning us that uh, this is a, an airborne disease. And, you know, we, we have to be careful and disassociate the efforts of ordinary uh, Chinese scientists and doctors to warn us about that, from the actions of, of the Chinese government, uh, an authoritarian state, to, to uh, uh, that has really not uh, not been cooperative in, in helping to find the causes and the roots of COVID nineteen. So, you know, um, in, in February or March, uh, Chinese doctors and scientists were telling us, uh, you know, go to airborne precautions, go to N ninety five respirators. This is an airborne disease. And they had done that. In late January of 20, 2020, uh, China had, had dropped the uh, uh, drop, uh, droplet precautions and had gone to, to airborne precautions. Next slide, please. So we go forward to, to July of 2020, uh, a letter uh, to WHO by, by Lydia Moraska and Don Milton um, said that uh, based on the evidence to date on, on COVID-19, they said there's enough uh, there's enough evidence to take a precautionary approach, and uh, they, they made a, a compelling argument in my view that uh, based on the precautionary principle, uh, we, we should uh, really ac accept and act in a focused way to, to mitigate airborne transmission. Next, uh, next slide, please. In Canada, however, you know our. Infectious disease leaders and uh, and public health leaders um, uh, were were highly critical of the of the uh, of, of the letter of, of the approach, and uh, you know uh, they said there was nothing new there, uh, nothing nothing worth acting upon, and uh, um, uh, you know it was uh, uh, there was also a, a strong sorry next slide. 
about a month after the uh, the Moraska Milton letter, uh, 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 an article was written uh, in, in opposition to, uh, to to the to the letter, um, claiming that uh, uh, it, it was it was not uh, it was not relevant, that it was premature. Blah blah blah, <clears throat> and and it was and this is very significant. The the uh, the leading uh, writers of it uh, were all Canadians. This was a Canadian uh, response to the, the uh, to the uh, Milton Moraska letter, and uh, about forty percent of the, of the signatories, never signatories from around the world, were Canadians. So it just demonstrated uh, how strong the large droplet dogma is in Canada and amongst amongst the. Uh, Infectious disease leaders and, uh, um, uh, and public health leaders. Next slide, please. What what they what the infectious disease and public health leaders were, were looking for from Lydia Moraska and Don Milton uh, was was certainty. They wanted certainty uh, at the level that we require. For, when, when putting in, when uh, introducing uh, new medicines and uh, new surgical procedures, they want that level of certainty. Well, well Lydia Moraska and Don Milton and those who signed the letter were saying, uh, we don't have certainty, but we have enough grounds to, to, to trigger the, the precautionary principle. Next slide, please. And you know the the precautionary principle is is really you know best known in the in in the climate change arena, where uh, you know climate change deniers over the last uh, thirty years have said you know we we need more evidence we need more evidence we need more evidence, and um, you know as we see with climate change uh, we've we've waited far too long to act, and. Uh, you know, uh, it would have been far better if we if we take the precautionary approach. Next slide, please. Hubris. The, the title of, of my presentation uh, was a term uh, that the ancient Greeks developed, and uh, it was it was it was referring to um, a type of uh, of exaggerated self confidence. Some say arrogance. And the opposite of, of hubris is is is, uh, is humility. Next slide, please. Many ex experts, including uh, Jack Coulihan, have talked about the importance of of of, of humility uh, in medicine. Um, how it it's it, it should be part and parcel of of the delivery of medical services. Next slide, please. But humility is also important in the face of a new pathogen. During SARS, we had a number of physicians testify that uh, you have to be humble. You can't be arrogant. You, you can't think that you know everything. In the face of a new pathogen, humility is a key, key quality. Next slide, please. Dr. Fauci ad admitted this himself uh, in, a, in a lecture to the Harvard Medical School in, in August of, uh, of 2020. Uh, he he had believed in the large droplet theory, but had come around to uh, to, to realize that in fact uh, aerosols play a huge role in in the transmission of COVID nineteen. And his his quotes, he said, "You just got to be humble enough to realize that we do not we do not know it all from the get go, and even as we get into it." Next slide, please. And the final slide is really uh, Dr. David Fisman from Toronto, who who uh, 
um, one of my heroes in, during COVID-19. And, uh, you know, he said, it's hard to say you were wrong. And he was a strong proponent of the, of the large droplet theory, but he followed the science. And uh, he, he, uh, he, he pointed to the importance of, of doing that. And I think, uh, just in closing, I think uh, humility is, is, a, is a quality that's been lacking amongst our public health and infectious disease leaders. Um, they, they've, they've kept power to themselves and they've been afraid to collaborate and work together with other relevant disciplines, especially engineering, which is why I'm so delighted that, uh, that uh, Matthew Oliver is able to, to join us. Uh, back to you, Michelle. Thank you so much, Mario. Before we actually say goodbye and I pop you back into the back area and bring up Matt, um, I would love to know what January, February, and March of 2020 felt like for you. Having that robust understanding of what the commission had recommended in terms of embracing the precautionary principle and watching decisions be made by leaders across the world. Um, what was going through your mind during? Well, it was, uh, it was really heartbreaking. You know, I was, uh, I was in, in, in communication with, uh, with, with uh, colleagues in, in China and Hong Kong, and they had gone to airborne precautions and they were telling me, what they were finding, and it was um, it was almost nightmarish because, you know, the, there were many people who who uh, who knew what was going on, uh, like like Lisa Brosseau and others, uh, who were warning governments, you know, let's let's be cautious, let's follow precautionary approach, uh, and in the face of it, uh, uh, you know, we were met uh, with, uh, with with hubris, with uh, our infectious disease and public health leaders saying, no, no, uh, you're wrong. We don't have to worry about uh, about airborne uh, transmission. Uh, surgical masks are okay. Plexiglass is okay. Um, and you know they've they've uh, they've not apologized. And I hope the time comes when they finally apologize uh, for uh, for what they've done. Thank you very much. I have many thoughts formulating and many more questions that I would like to ask. And so hopefully we'll find some minutes at the end. Um, yeah, thank you. Hello, Matt. Um, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I'm gonna turn things over to you in a second to help deepen our understanding of the interconnectedness. We just spoke a bit about um, allied professionals or professionals that could be allies, um, other industries outside of direct hands-on care in terms of infectious disease and public health that really could affect and have affected and could continue to create a robust response when dealing with something like COVID-19. Um, with, I don't know, those imposed boundaries and jurisdictional authorities. Oftentimes I notice that our focus is very much on regional actions and reactions, um, which in a connected scientific, natural and human ecology, uh, jurisdictional actions 
flow way beyond those imaginary lines in the sand um, and appreciating and respecting that interconnectedness, I feel anyway, is key for us finding our way back to that humility over the next year, two years, month, and away from that hubris that Mario was just speaking about. So I will pop your slides up and thank you so very Uh, thanks, Michelle, and uh, thanks to Dr. Lynn and Mario for uh, those fascinating overviews. So I'm not a SARS-1 uh, expert. I'm not a disease expert. Uh, I'm, I'm an engineer, and I'm not even a ventilation expert, so please don't ask me questions about fans. Um, I'll refer you off to one of my expert colleagues. Uh, what I'm going to talk about a little bit is uh, engineering and accountability, and just leading off on what Michelle said, uh, I'm going to talk start by talking about systems engineering. I'm going to end by talking about Indigenous cosmology, which both talk about that uh, interconnectedness. And when we talk about complex systems, they really don't care what side of a border they're on because they're going to do their complex uh, system stuff. Um, as you heard Mario talk about uh, Dr. Allegranzi's uh, comment, one of the things that's really characterized the pandemic for uh, my profession and for my colleagues in the natural sciences is really a, a fairly active marginalization of, uh, of our expert voices. Um, so what I want to talk about on the engineering side is I, I'm not going to try and be uh, critical about those things I've observed, uh, but I'm just going to talk about engineering as a method. Uh, and you'll see the threads through that of the things where we can bring a direct comment on the pandemic. One thing I will say about the comment of uh, hubris is that uh, engineering is, is really defined by our study of failures. And I'll talk about that in a bit, but I will say as a forensic engineer that the failure modes I've seen clearly, particularly in public health policy in the last two years, uh, the causal factors I can trace those back to look a lot like the 737 MAX and look a lot like Challenger and Columbia. Uh, we don't really invent new ways to fail. Okay, so uh, a couple of quick things uh, as I'm realizing that uh, one of the things engineers fight against is our profession is not actually that well known broadly. And when uh, I have encounters with high school students and they say, well, tell me what an engineer does, uh, that's a nearly impossible question to answer. But what I usually say is, just take a look around the environment where we are now, and I want you to find something for me that is not engineered. And they very quickly realize as they find some, what they think are good examples, and I explain to them how those things ha had been engineering touched, it really is impossible to do. And that engineering often involves systems that directly impact on our safety, but the broader public do not think about life that way. Part of the reason for that is because uh, engineered systems have been so effective at protecting people. We take them for granted. Uh, engineering is all about the transformation of the national, natural world to better society. But we're not always the first go-to when a challenge is faced because we, we hover in the background. Uh, good engineering is often said to be engineering that's not noticed. And another reality is that our engineering is always interdisciplinary, as one of us rarely has the competence to take on all parts of a design. So an engineering natural response to a new problem is to pull together an interdisciplinary team that often includes non-engineers to bring those diverse uh, perspectives to the table. Uh, next slide. Now, one of the things we do bring is a deep understanding of complex systems through what's called systems engineering. And really all engineering is systems engineering. So that water treatment plant that enables your tea is one part of an immense system that begins with the headwaters and ends after a distribution system delivers it safely to your home. 
Those engineered water systems address serious public health challenges like typhoid from contaminated water, which we still had in Canadian cities in the early 1900s. And all engineering involves this understanding and controlling of complex systems which have unexpected properties that emerge unpredictably. Complex systems like the climate, like healthcare systems, like people's health. And the engineering method understands the natural creation well enough to design and model it to give us benefits as diverse as aircraft wings, to GPS, to flat screen displays. And much of this is directly applicable to pandemic response. It's a very unhappy irony in the panic pandemic conflict around the adequacy of knowledge that those who exclusively promote only one form of valid knowledge generation do so using hundreds of engineer systems, often ones that they trust their lives to without realizing that those engineered systems arise from entirely different me methods of creating knowledge. So it does raise the question, next slide, if engineering is everywhere and that involves complex systems that behave unpredictably, why are there not thousands of people killed daily by engineering failures? And that question really cuts to the, the core of who we are as a profession. Now, the first answer is that the engineering method creates knowledge and applies it in a manner that allows us to constrain and control those complex systems so that when something unexpected arises, it's a graceful event. And one of the big differences between engineers and, uh, and the scientific community is that we rarely operate with scientific certainty. I think as an engineer, I would say that scientific certainty is a little bit of a myth. We're always engaging the practical world in a way that constrains it and allows us to transform it in a way that assists people. Now, the second aspect of that is that licensed engineers are ethically and legally bound to a code of conduct that places the general welfare of the public as our first priority always. And the undeniable success of the engineering method in serving society and a strong ethical foundation means that we don't have bridges and buildings and airplanes falling out uh, daily. And when those things do happen, they lead to intensive investigations, often taking many years to determine the failure modes so we can adapt our methods so they never happen again. Engineering is a profession that studies its failures intensely and defining moments like Challenger or the 737 MAX Surfside condo, these things remain in the engineering lexicon literally for generations. And uh, even the uh, iron ring that uh, many Canadian engineers wear is tied back to a uh, Quebec uh, bridge collapse. And this is where the, the uh, hubris vaccination comes in. We wear it on our working hands so that as we're working, the ring is constantly brushing whatever it is we're doing as a constant reminder that when engineers make mistakes, people can be harmed. Engineered systems shouldn't kill or harm the public we're bound to protect. Next slide. Now a 90 degree turn into uh, Métis cosmology. Um, there's been a whole bunch of stuff in the pandemic that's, uh, that's hit me in very visceral ways uh, on the Indigenous side. One of the things that colonialism is very effective at doing is silencing voices, and particularly those voices which stand up to challenge the dominant method. And one of the failures uh, you heard Mario talk about is this uh, lack of interdisciplinary engagement in public health policy, particularly through excluding the expertise of scientists and engineers. And early on, I found I was reacting very viscerally to that science silencing, which I realized was actually a reaction to it being an expression of colonial violence and tying into my own family history. It's the same sort of trauma that our communities continue to experience. And this is one of the this is maybe one of the learnings out of the pandemic is that colonial violence isn't only directed at indigenous persons, it's a characteristic of the system. So anybody that speaks out against it should expect they'll be receiving that sort of uh, colonial treatment. 
Now that silencing that we see in colonial systems is in sharp contrast to an indigenous approach, which would understand that the wisdom and knowledge needed to work through a challenge is already present in the community. And we'd call that an interdisciplinary approach in science, but it's really core to how indigenous live. And just as one last thought uh, in conclusion, my observation is that indigenous cosmologies are better at grasping the intrinsic complexity of creation. And one of the things I've seen repeatedly uh, in, uh, in public policy is that it attempts to apply very linear simplifications to reality. And that uh, application of a linear simplification to a very complicated reality, it's a very, very colonial approach to, uh, to complexity. So the two sides of my, uh, my two-eyed seeing, as uh, Albert Marshall said, uh, one eye that's engineering, one eye that's uh, Métis, both of them come together in this holistic systems engineering approach or in the interdisciplinary approach that we'd see in Indigenous communities. And thanks so much for the chance to be here today. No, thank you very much for um, making the time to join us for this, what's going to end up being just over an hour. Um, I want to find a moment of hope and joy. Um, I, I really, really do. So I very much appreciate you highlighting how some of the failures, I, it, from an improv theatrical perspective, I often view it as the no's lead to yeses. Like the strong, powerful, best no's um, are what lead to the absolute best yeses and opportunities. Um, and so I want to, I really, really want to internalize that ideally we will find a way back into the the humanity, that understanding of that interconnectedness, that appreciation of how much all of us as creators and thinkers and makers and discoverers and scientists can contribute to a robust growing society that protects and tries to find new and inventive ways to keep us all in the conversation. Um, on that sort of side, I'm curious, do you feel as a professional who has not had their voice listened to as much as one should be um, at this current moment in time, do you feel like economics has played a role in terms of the engineering side of things um, and government's lack of interest in adopting airborne precautions over droplet? Am I frozen or is Matt frozen? No, sorry, I was waiting, I thought you were, oh, thought you were no. just the question. Um, I, I think that's certainly, you know, one of the things engineers bring to the table is we take a, uh, when we're working on design projects, uh, economics are always a constraint. Uh, certainly, when we start to talk about the uh, the requirements for upgrading ventilation systems in the built environment, the existing buildings, to better provide that uh, the high number of air changes per hour and higher grade filtration on recirculation that we need to to actually remove pathogens from the air, there's a huge dollar figure associated with that because HVAC units are not the sort of thing you pick up off the shelf at Home Depot and install on your weekend. They're engineered systems, they're complicated, and uh, they're expensive. Um, so I think I think the answer is yes, economics is certainly a part of it. I mean, the shame is there 
are lots of uh, alternative methods that are exceptionally cost-effective, like supplemental filtration units, like the Corsi-Rosenthal box that we've seen. Um, and I, maybe just to reflect on your comment about hopefulness and no's leading to yeses, one of the things that makes me exceptionally hopeful is the degree of, uh, of uh, citizenship, citizen science that I've seen done, particularly groups like parent advocacy groups that have become rapidly expert, experts in ventilation in schools and are advocating for change uh, in spite of uh, there not being a significant level of leadership. So that is a great point of hope for me. I have also often reflected and shared with um, our viewers at home the, mm, the tingling sensation that I get around the creation of community and coming together of folks from coast to coast to coast that I never had the privilege of witnessing to the degree that I have over the last two years. And thank, thank you for that reminder, Matt, that I'm going to bring everybody up into the conversation before we say our goodbyes for the day. Um, going forward, um, after listening to all of each other's unique perspectives on this and with your own robust internal knowledge, what do we need over the next year? And what do we need to prepare for disease X.2? Any one of you can start and then we'll just build. I can start. I, I think, um, tying all the, the uh, presentation together. At the end of the day, it's about humility. It's about admitting when you don't know, admitting when you're wrong, and admitting that this can't be solved by a single discipline or a single individual. It needs an interdisciplinary team from all the science. So sociology, engineering, aerosol, um, plus medicine, but not exclusively medicine. We need policy, uh, sociology, all of that. And I always bring the lived ex expertise. We can't tell people what to do. They need to tell us what's working for their community and what, what is applicable. There's a local context and a local expertise that we never take into consideration. So, I think it's moving from that hero leader that people seem to really want to that multidisciplinary team, uh, taking the local context in, in consideration and a reiterative approach, knowing you're going to get it wrong, but you can learn from it, you can pivot and then keep aiming higher. And that's, I think, where we need to go. Yeah, no, I I I agree hundred percent with uh, with Lynn. I uh, I I think that uh, you know the the two aspects that Matt talked about, the engineering learnings and the indigenous learnings are are really vital. And uh, I've heard Matt uh, speak a few times, and and I always find it very very inspiring, because I think that uh, you know we need to really well learn from engineers, but also. Uh, learn learn from the in indigenous uh, uh, science and wisdom, and and you know really listen carefully because uh, um, you know I think I think they, they really hold 
the key to really dealing with with, with future pandemics, but also to to healing, uh, you know, the the, uh, the colonial tragedies that that, uh, that have really damaged uh, uh, the Métis and, and and other indigenous peoples. Um, thanks both of you for those wonderful comments. I think one of my focuses is in systems engineering and safety engineering. We often talk about the need for resilience in systems. Um, and the modern thought of resilience isn't that resilience avoids bad things. It allows us to do good things better. So it builds the capacity to do good things in the system. And I think we're on a track for building that resilience, but that's really what we need going forward to uh, to encounter the next pandemic, whenever that might be. Um, it means using the lessons we've learned and not shelving the COVID-19 Royal Inquiry report for another 20 years um, so we can have this discussion in uh, 2042. Um, but learning from that and then figuring out what transformation needs to happen to build that resilience into the society from the bottom up, which includes hearing all the voices um, and bringing everybody to the table so we can we can leverage that wisdom that exists in our communities to find the best solutions for everyone. I appreciated your um, your comment on colonial violence because it certainly has felt like that, that if you um, go against the people in power, suddenly media turns on you and you're being um, ostracized and also villainized. And it was something new for me. So I, I appreciate that comment to make sense of it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Hundred uh, percent. You know, I uh, in, uh, in in the spring of 2020, uh, I I was quoted with some other people in an, an article warning about airborne transmission, the precautionary principle, and uh, we were lambasted by a group of infectious disease doctors as being uh, conspiracy theorists, and uh, man, <laughs> that just that just blew me away. But it just really ties into uh, to Matt's analysis and perspective and. Uh, I, I really hope that going forward, and, and I think it, it it may be helped by by you know, Matt talked about uh, you know the, the the fact that so many people like those who organized this event uh, have have informed themselves, have gotten involved, and and uh, you know have really become engaged in, in protecting their their families and their communities. Um, I hope we can move forward on that basis, but also you know really really carefully and, and with great humility. Uh, learning from our, our indigenous brothers and sisters. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, Thomas Kuhn, Mary, on your presentation. I've really been enjoying le learning about uh, Ludwig Fleck, um, who uh, Kuhn commented on very favorably, talking about how systems of expertise um, formulate themselves to protect themselves from outside influence. It's really a dynamic that we've seen quite clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. Thank you all so much for taking the time to be with us today. Um, as always, this is an exceptionally robust topic that we never managed to make our way through in an hour, and we could sit here for weeks and discuss. Um, for those of you watching at home, since it is such a robust topic, please feel free to revisit the broadcast, um, rewind, go back through. I know I will. Um, there's a lot to unpack about the actions that we have made over the last two years, the actions that we have 
allowed to happen as a society to ignore and not embrace the learnings of SARS, MERS, and in all honesty, the learnings of our human journey. Um, I am so thankful that we have had this time with these humans who have so much knowledge and an intrinsic relationship with what is affecting all of us every day and that they are willing to give up their time to share with all of us humans um, to, yeah, to give us that intrinsic expertise to the external. Um, to the approximately 3 billion humans celebrating Lunar New Year right now, and to everyone joining us today, I do hope that the new year brings you prosperity, luck, and good health. And may this year bring an opportunity for us as citizens of the globe, as Canadians from coast to coast to coast, to utilize some of the wisdom of the last two months, the last two years, and the knowledge gathered and shared with us all by those who have faced these moments in history before, so that we can correct our current course and move towards the light that interconnectedness can bring. For those of you who have previously listened to our briefings on Spotify, please know that we have removed our briefings from their platform. You can still find an audio-only version of all of our briefings on our website, on Apple, and on Google. Tomorrow, Pop Alberta, as opposed to our national edition, will be back at 4 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, taking a deep dive into as many areas of Alberta's response as we can manage with the hour that we have. And as always, remember COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best mask or respirator you have access to. And I always say, and vaccines really do save lives. But today I would also like to add, so does every single one of us. Till next time, stay safe, Canada. Mm -hmm.